everyone, I'm your host, Patrick Brown. In this episode of The Podcast on Church, State, and Faithful Citizenship, we're returning to one of our favorite topics, virtue, and those virtues which are essential to the flourishing of individuals, families, and societies. Our guest is Bill Donahue, President and CEO of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights, which is the largest Catholic civil rights organization in the United States. We'll be talking about Bill's recently published book, The War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. Bill has led the Catholic League since 1993. He's a prolific author and commentator on civil liberties and religion, as well as a former teacher whose career began at an inner city school in New York City. Please take a moment to subscribe to Crown and Crozier wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening in. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first. Bill Donahue, welcome to Crown and Crozier. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. We're here to talk about your new book, War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. First question off the bat for you is what inspired you to, to write this book and, and tackle this subject matter head on? Well, as a sociologist, I've long been interested in upward mobility and what is it that makes people more successful than others. I've also spent a great deal of time with those who haven't done as well, namely African-Americans. I spent uh, many years working in Spanish Harlem with black and Puerto Rican kids. When I was a college professor, I was the faculty advisor to the basketball team, had the pleasure of working with a lot of black kids. And I have come to the conclusion that blacks, like everybody else, can make it as long as they have what I call the vital virtues, personal responsibility, perseverance, and, uh, and self-discipline. If you inculcate these virtues into any human being, they are likely to succeed. And if you don't, they're not going to succeed. So that, is, that was one of the driving forces behind me writing the book. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take a couple of the key terms in your title piece by piece. Again, it's war on virtue, how the ruling class is killing the American dream. So first and foremost, virtue, the fundamental definition. There have been many attempts to define it over the millennia. What's a definition of virtue that you find the most compelling and comprehensive? I've, I've written a book about why, why Catholicism matters, which is about the four cardinal virtues. So I know the subject very well. Uh, it, the easiest way, it's like Occam's razor. Get right to the point. Two words, good habit. That's what a virtue is. It's a good habit. And, and uh, that was understood by Aristotle and Cicero uh, long before Aquinas and, uh, and, and St. Augustine and many others. But it clearly is, uh, in, in my mind, while there are many, many important virtues, and I mentioned patriotism as an important one in the book too, but the idea of self-discipline and, 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 uh, and taking responsibility for yourself and exercising perseverance they are what I call the vital virtues, because without them, the Asians wouldn't have done what they've been able to do. It also would not be true of the Nigerians, who were spectacularly successful in this country. And, of course, uh, Mormons, I, I, I mentioned, and Jews, who have exceeded very well. Now, notice that two of the four groups I mentioned, Asians and Nigerians, 
are, quote, people of color. So much for the argument that the reason why African-Americans have not succeeded as well in this country economically and educationally is because of racial discrimination. If that were the case, then those two people of colors, those two major groups, Nigerians and Asians, would be at the bottom of the scale, and yet they're at the top. There's something else going on. It's the absence of the vital virtues in the African-American community, uh, which, which to me is the telling commentary. And in your book, you talk about virtue as a component of, quote unquote, a scale of values. Can you speak a little bit more to that term, the scale of values? Well, there's more to, uh, to success than just simply economic and educational success. And, and, and the, 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 the guy who coined the term uh, on, 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 uh, on the idea of American dream uh, understood this as well. Uh, there are other aspects of, of a more cerebral uh, entities and, and spiritual notions and, and sense of well-being and happiness. Uh, those, those factors are important. But when we get right down to it, though, most Americans, at least in this country, I think, do agree that the measure of, of, of economic success and, and educational success uh, are really the telling tale uh, of, of the American dream. I mean, it is, unfortunately, mostly materialistic. But James Treslow Adams, who coined the term American Dream, uh, felt that there was another dimension to it. Well, now that we've set the terms and the parameters for virtue, the ruling class, how do you define ruling class? Basically, the decision makers, the elites in all the major institutions in our society. And I have long argued that the people in the educational uh, community, uh, as well as the media, the entertainment uh, industry, uh, the arts, uh, they were all, all have been overwhelmingly left of center in their politics. It's only in recent times that the corporate world, corporate giants in the United States, the healthcare industry, the military, these institutions, while the average person is not some kind of a woke, radical, left-wing activist, it is true, however, that left-wing ideology has seeped its way into the, the elite decision-making. So we now have the perverse idea of the United States Navy now using a transgender man to recruit men to join the Navy. Of course, the Navy is failing dramatically, as is the Army and the Air Force, and I'm an Air Force veteran. I wrote a letter to the Joint Chiefs of Staff here about a week ago to Mark Milley asking him, why are you doing this? This is, this is basically a form of institutional suicide. Uh, we now have the situation with the healthcare industry. A leading doctors from Harvard are lying to the American people, lying when they say that men can get pregnant and, and give birth. We all know that that's not true. When we see this in the corporate world, they're supporting the Equality Act, which Biden said he would sign. If that act were to become law, it means that all Catholic hospitals would be shut down tomorrow because they'd be denied federal funding because they won't perform uh, sex reassignment surgery and abortion. So this kind of woke left-wing ideology is now, uh, it, it's now uh, infected the very top decision makers of the ruling class. And the ruling class, my central argument is this, mostly white people, well-educated, at least well-schooled, you should say, uh, and they, have, they are the biggest racist in our society today, even though they claim to be fighting racism. And the reason I say that, they don't treat black people as equals. They've basically given up on them. They look down on them. They're patronizing, condescending their attitudes. They, they figure that the only way black can succeed is by writing the check, reparations, lowering the standards and pushing them across the finish line. That is the ultimate expression of white racism. 
Just the the juxtaposition in the title of your book, the word virtue next to ruling class. Do you think the ruling class even accepts the premise or the concept or idea of virtue? And and if not, what do they put in its place or pursue in its place? Oh, I think they they accept it in their own life. How else would they have succeeded to where they're at? Uh, And I think they also believe in it in many other people. I I do think, as I say, that I don't care how much they say, oh, no, we're not racist. We gave 80 $82 $82 billion, $83 billion to Black Lives Matter and whatnot. Uh, yeah, that's also a form of racism because you, you, Black Lives Matter says they want to destroy the nuclear family. It's weakened up in the black community already without that black activists wanting to kill it. And now the, 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 the Wall Street boys, uh, when it, when it give them the money, that's basically to shut them up. You know that. That's what it, it started with Jesse Jackson and, and, and Al Sharpton back in the 70s uh, to, to get Wall Street uh, to get uh, them off the back of Wall Street, Wall Street decided to write them checks. And that instead of treating people as equals and saying, no, you can't do that, or saying to blacks, no, you will learn, and we will hold you accountable, as I did in Spanish Harlem, and the blacks did succeed because I held them accountable and I didn't lower the bar. I helped them to actually clear the bar. If you did that, then that's treating people as equals. Just the last term I want to make sure we get clarity on and, and alignment, the American dream. What is it? And is it still viable? And, and is it still something that's operative in the lives of Americans? Well, the, the originator of the American dream back in 1931 thought that was somewhat of a spiritual dimension to it. He, he, he even he said that there's mostly it's mostly materialistically understood. The American dream, as understood by most Americans today, clearly is one of economic success. And in order to get to become uh, successful uh, economically, one, generally speaking, has to be a success in terms of academic achievement. So yes, doing well in school and in, and in the workplace uh, and, and, and be, being able to live a middle-class lifestyle, that is the American dream, which fortunately, most Americans have not given up on, even though the ruling class has given up on some non-whites. The theme that you have in your book is when the Republic was established, the founding fathers put all the right systems, all the right virtues, all the right principles, all the right institutions in place. But something changed along the way. When do you think the war on virtue began? Is it possible to pinpoint a point of origin? Yes, I think like so many uh, negative things that have happened in the West, uh, certainly in North America and in Europe, it all is directly traceable to the 1960s. There's no question about it. In the 1950s, the family was stable. People were doing well in school. Um, we, 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 we had a society where you didn't have uh, abortion was not legal. There was no and, and there were a few of them where you had uh, the, the pill was not even available until 1960. Um, you, you had a society where blacks were doing relatively well. They were making their way into society. But in the 1960s, you had the baby boom generation. Wherever there's a lot of young people, uh, you're likely to see experimentation. In the 1960s, we had a couple of things happening. We had a civil rights movement at the same time as the war in Vietnam, an unpopular war, and and with a a ballooning segment of young people with their high aspirations. It's almost like a perfect storm that came together demographically and ideologically. And instead of trying to say, let's build on the past, and make society better for everybody, there was an anarchist strain, which is now very strong in in the Western world, where instead of wanting to make things better, the activists want to actually tear things down. 
as I've said oftentimes, well, the Marxists were wrong in understanding human nature. And Marx himself was wrong in thinking that the working class would carry the revolution on their back. At least Marx and the Marxists that came after him believed that they had the right blueprint and that eventually society would be better off because capitalism would see its demise succeeded by socialism and ultimately communism. Now, it was a fanciful idea. They didn't understand human nature. But at least I give them credit for thinking that in the future, society might be better. They got this utopian visionaries. Today, everyone knows that socialism fails. I mean, that's why we have all the Venezuelans and Nicaraguans rushing into the southern border of the United States. It's because of left-wing socialist policies. Uh, Quite frankly, the, the left knows that socialism doesn't work. So instead of saying, well, maybe I'll take a look at the fruits of the market economy, they want to chant things down. So we're into this anarchist movement, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and others. And, and, it's, and the, the elites in education and elsewhere are actually egging them on in this regard. It's almost a form of social suicide is what we see in the Western world. Alongside uh, what you call or what you quote the period of the 1960s as the Great Disruption There's also something else happening in parallel, which is the blame America movement or blame America phenomenon. And in your book, you say that that movement has has three distinct stages. Could you lay those out for us? Well, certainly that's Jean Kirkpatrick's understanding. She was the great uh, U.N. ambassador and uh, and a Georgetown University professor, served Ronald Reagan. And she understood that it began out in San Francisco, the blame America or hate America first campaign. And it always begins in education. It always starts in education, uh, in in higher education, that is. And multiculturalism certainly played a major role. Multiculturalism, in a generous interpretation, means we should all respect other people's cultures. But that's really not what's driving multi-education. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture, Western civilization's got to go. That was the chant by Jesse Jackson in 1988, on the campus of Stanford University, I commend him for his honesty. They hate Western civilization because it's rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethos. Fine. Kill it. Then what? You're going to turn to the Muslim world? Is that what you want? You're going to turn to the Eastern civilizations? Is that what you want? It was the Western world that ended slavery, driven by Christianity. It wasn't in the rest of the world. It wasn't anyplace else. The reason why people are crashing the borders of the United States is because we are the least oppressive, least uh, 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 society which treats people badly. Now, we've been lied to and we continue to be lied to by the hate America people. They're a minority of of, of the numbers, but they are that they occupy very high seats of power. They are they've they've made their way into the ruling class. And that's where the danger is. You lay out in dedicated chapters in your book specific examples and manifestations of what you call virtue under fire. I'm just going to rattle them off quickly. Promoting racism, devaluing the family, giving up on the poor, sabotaging education, and rewarding incivility. There's a common theme and thread to those which you tackle in the book, and it's this idea of custodial democracy. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a bit more and and speak to how that is kind of a unifying or consistent thread across all of these examples of the assault on virtue. Well, first of all, let me commend you for giving an accurate interpretation of what I've written. That is not something I'm always treated to. Uh, yes, the, the, the custodial democracy was the term 
uh, coined by Charles Murray, a distinguished American social scientist back in 1988, when he said that uh, the way the white liberal elites look at blacks is basically they are the custodians who will take care of blacks. They will be wards of the state. They'll be like the the, the, reserva- the reservations in the rural areas for Indians. These will be our urban reservations, so to speak. And that's because they don't treat blacks as equals. They don't see them as equal. But as I point out in the book, this has a, a long pedigree. We can go back to the 1850s. I introduce, I think, to the American language. I don't think most people know. I've ever heard of George Fitzhugh. I don't blame them for not knowing about him. George Fitzhugh was the America's first sociologist. He was a man of the left, a progressive. He was on the side of black people, and he was also on the side of slavery. People might say, "Well, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. How in the world could you be on this, be pro-slavery and 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 be on the side of African Americans?" Because he said they're fundamentally a stupid people. They can't succeed. They're going to cannibalize each other. And what's nice about slavery, he says that blacks are the freest people probably in the whole world. Everything's taken care of for them because they can't compete against white people in in a capitalist economy. They'd be driven down. So let's take care of them. Then in the late 19th, early 20th century, the progressive movement, Richard Eli said pretty much the same thing. They're dumb people. They can't compete. So let's just take care of them. That attitude is there today. And it's what really is revolting to me is that is the people who claim to be at the interest of the poor uh, at heart are often, not all the time, but often are the ones who are the biggest enemies of the poor. I identify Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven, a husband and wife couple from Columbia University, who pushed for the idea of getting every black person you could find and put him on welfare in the 1960s so we could crash the economy the United States wouldn't allow New York City to go bankrupt and they'll come in with a socialist design. They were using blacks as pawns, as, as political pieces to further their own political agenda. And, I, and, and I'm hopeful that more and more African-Americans, many are beginning to see the light, that those who claim to have their best interest in mind are often their biggest enemy because they won't treat them as an equal. If you treat people as equal, you're not condescending, you're not patronizing, you don't want to lower the bar, you want to help the people clear the bar. Out of all the examples we just listed of of virtue under fire, there is one that I'd like to dwell on for a minute or two, devaluing the family. If you don't mind me perhaps putting you on the spot a bit, you open up in the book and, and talk about your own personal experience and your own story growing up without the benefit of a father. Could you speak to that a little bit more, your experience, what you went through, and how this war on virtue from the ruling class is setting up so many young Americans to go through what you experienced? Yes, well, in my own experience, my father uh, abandoned me when I was a child. I hardly knew him at all. I met up with him much later in life, uh, briefly. Uh, And I can just tell you, you know, boys being boys, and by that, let me be explicit, we have more testosterone than girls. And testosterone is clearly linked to aggressive behavior. That's why boys are much more self-destructive than girls, although the girls are catching up, unfortunately. Uh, and so when, when boys don't have a father, it has nothing to do with race. It has absolutely nothing to do with race, which is precisely why I gave an account of my own background. And when boys don't have a father, they don't have anybody to discipline. I mean, the mothers can try, and some of them do the best job they can, but it really does take a father to discipline uh, a boy. And when you have whole neighborhoods in particular, whole neighborhoods, where 70, 80%, 90% of the people in the neighborhood are young boys with no fathers. This is rife for criminal behavior. 
if you take a look at middle-class black families where they have an intact family, they don't have high crime rates amongst their, amongst their children. It's a function of class. It's a function of, of, of fatherless homes. It has nothing to do with race. And I wish a number of conservatives who are whites would, would finally uh, click onto this themselves because they leave themselves open to the charge that they're racist, uh, when in fact it's, it's really, it's a sociological dimension here. You cite many voices, uh, including scholars who are visible minorities, as sources of wisdom, as sources of truth, who are pushing back and providing some resistance and some, some ammunition to rebut and to counter the assaults on virtue and, and the lies that members of the ruling class throw our way. Are there any voices that you cited in your book that really stand out for you and that you would want to see amplify? and would want more of our listeners, more people of the public to be aware of? Well, I, I certainly appreciate the work, work of Columbia professor uh, John McWhorter, uh, Glenn Lowry over at Brown, Shelby Steele at the uh, Hoover Institute, um, and, and, and so many others, Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal. But uh, th- if there's one kingpin, it's obviously Thomas Sowell. He's in his 90s. Uh, spent most of his career at the Hoover Institute uh, on the campus of Stanford University. Uh, I've been, I used his books back in the 1980s and 70s and 80s when I was a college professor in Pittsburgh. Uh, he's been around for a very long time. Uh, he was a student of Milton Friedman. He started out on the left, by the way. And uh, then he worked in the Department of Labor in the United States government and realized how government was so incredibly organically inefficient. He saved his classroom notes from Milton Friedman, went back and read them and realized that a market economy is the best answer to to economic woes, uh, not socialism. And in fact, he realized that if blacks had more opportunities to participate uh, and and practice virtue, that they would uh, succeed as well. So I would say Thomas Sowell stands out among all of them. Uh, I'm very proud that we have uh, people like that. And now we have a, a guy who's uh, running for president of the United States who's uh, Indian. He's not black, but he's a person of color. He's out of Harvard, Vivek uh, Ramashami. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a breath of fresh air as well. So I, I am hopeful uh, that more black Americans and, and people of color, Asians clearly are moving away, and so are Hispanics, from, from the dependency ideas foisted upon them by the Democratic Party. And the latest results just this week that have come out that black Americans are peeling away as well. They're not happy with Biden. And, 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 and uh, how anybody would be is, is, is to me a mystery. Just in our remaining time, I want to talk about what we can do, what our listeners can do, what the public can do to combat this war on virtue. You give us a few invitations and encouragements in the book, one of which is simply to combat the war on virtue with more virtue, to grow in virtue. Speak to that a little bit more in terms of the areas of our individual and common lives where a greater emphasis has to be placed on the inculcation of virtue. Well, Francis Fukuyama, uh, the author of The Great Disruption, talking about before, uh, he talks about the need for a renorming of our society. And so did Gertrude Himmelfarb, who passed away uh, before him. That is to say, we need to get back to our Judeo-Christian roots. Those, that is the heritage. It's a proud heritage. Obviously, there's been all kinds of bad things committed by Jews and Christians in history. But everything they did that was wrong, including priests, by the way, in our own ranks, uh, they violated they violated the teachings. They weren't consistent with them. Uh, people who kill in the name of Marxism are, are, are compliant with Marxism. 
There's a big difference here. If we got back to our roots, instead of trashing Western civilization, I'm not saying you have to wear it on your sleeve, but we should we should be celebrating the greatness of Western civilization and 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 what we what what it's done with North America and and in Europe. We're the envy of the world. We have to get back to the idea that personal responsibility is important. It's critical. You've got to learn to persevere in society. You have to uh, also practice self-discipline if you're going to succeed in society, the vital virtues. And that's that's not a matter of whiteness. That's another example of where the ruling class is, is, is being showing its racism. That's just a, an example of common sense. And we should try to inculcate those virtues into all children and not just give up on black Americans and say, well, you can't cut it like George Fitzhugh said, and we'll, which was justifying slavery. No, that is the ultimate racist idea. And we have to understand, too, as I often tell people on radio and TV, if we live in a world today where you have a lot of experts on radio and TV, if these experts are saying something to you that your gut says is wrong, trust your gut and do more scratching around for information and, and research, and you'll find out nine times out of ten your gut is right. We are being misled today by a lot of people who call themselves well-educated. I call them well-schooled. They stayed in school a long time. They're not thinking independently. They're a herd of independent thinkers, if anything. And and so I do think that uh, th- this, this war is not over. The culture war is not over. We can either quit or fight. As far as I'm concerned, there's only one choice. We have to continue to fight. The vast majority of people exercise common sense. They're good. They do. They do understand the virtues uh, that are embedded in the Judeo-Christian uh, community, and we need to take on the elites and get them to come back to their senses. Well, I think that's a perfect capstone to our discussion, Bill Donahue. I want to thank you very much for your time. Again, the book is. War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. Thanks so much for being with us on Crown and Crozier. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying Crown and Crozier, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd be grateful if you could help us reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Check out our website at crownandcrozier.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're sincerely grateful for your support, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship.